morning, we are continuing, as it's our third Sunday, our You Can Ask That series. We're uh, pausing, First and Second Samuel. We'll be back in that book next week, and then we'll continue forward. But uh, today, again, we'll be looking at questions that you've submitted. And you have uh, uh, filled out those little cards and given some great questions. Let me tell you. In our time on the third Sundays for the next few months, we're looking at things that maybe you have struggled with in terms of life, theology, culture, and apologetics. Having reasonable, biblical, understandable, and relatable answers to the questions that we wrestle with. Uh, as well as those that we encounter from others in life. It's very important to, um, to be able to have a reasonable response to those things. Peter addresses this in his first epistle in chapter 3, verse 15. He writes, But sanctify, set apart the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. It's not only important that we know what, what we believe and have the ability to defend and explain it, to give a defense to others, but we also need to be able to have those answers for ourselves. Because undealt with and, and unresolved questions, they become room for doubt and unbelief. Our faith is rational and solid answers exist for what we believe. We should exercise the discipline and do the work of finding those answers that, that we might move forward growing in our faith. So today we're going to be looking at three separate questions, each of which relates somewhat to one another. And so today our message is entitled, What Does God Want For Us? And before we move further forward, let's stop and pray and ask God to speak to us. Father, as we begin, Lord, this, um, this message, Father, in, in looking at what it is that you require, God, what you're asking of your people, Lord, us as individuals and corporately, we pray that you would speak to us, God. Lord, some of these are questions that maybe we've wondered about. Others, maybe we think, oh, I, I, I know the answer to that. Well... There's always some way that, that we can grow, Lord, some way in which we can be stretched closer to your heart. And I pray that by your Holy Spirit that would happen tomorrow, that you, today, excuse me, that, Lord, you would minister to us what it is that, that you have for us, that you would speak, Lord, and that we would listen. In Jesus' name, amen. What does God want from us? us. Our questions this morning speak to this very thing. What it is that God wants. What does he want in the context um, of the individual believer? But then also, how do we know God's will for the church? Whether it's big picture issues or small decisions, how do we know what we're doing is what God wants us to? How do we figure that out? Working through this question, I think, is really important. Because if we're honest, a lot of us struggle with basic obedience, at least sometimes. We wrestle with saying yes to God in certain areas. 
or we wonder why we have to do it his way. We question God. In fact, a lot of Christians uh, work pretty hard to manipulate things so that at the end of the day, they can essentially do whatever it is that they want to. So as we begin this first of three questions, asking what is it God wants from me, it actually would be a good exercise to pause a minute and, and ask ourselves, do I really care? Am I really interested in what it is that God wants? And frankly, does my life, does my heart reflect that? Am I really living in a way where that's my desire? Do I wrestle internally? Am I wondering the answer to that question? Do I ever question myself? Is this what God wants? Am I doing something that's pleasing to him? That should be a question, an uncomfortable struggle that rises up semi-regularly in our lives. If we're listening to the Holy Spirit, if we're responding to conviction... I read an author who wrote of, of an old Scottish woman who went from, from home to home across the countryside selling thread, buttons, and shoestrings. Well, when she came to an unmarked crossroads, a fork in the road, she would toss a stick into the air and, and go in the direction the stick pointed when it landed. One day, however, she was seen tossing the stick up several times. She kept throwing it back up and the Someone asked, why do you toss the stick more than once? Well, because, replied the woman, it keeps pointing to the left, and I want to take the road to the right. She then dutifully kept throwing the stick into the air until it pointed the way that she wanted to go. How many of us live our lives that way? How many of us are, are shopping advice or looking to push to make things happen and move in the direction that really is what we want to do anyway. We're really not interested in what God wants. We have a tendency to do that. We keep asking the same question until we get the answer that we want. We'll push, we'll whine, we'll complain until we finally get our way. We'll force our plan and then some of us are really good at doing that and then calling it God's will because he is sovereign after all. So how do we know for certain that we're doing what God wants us to do? And is there room for negotiating? Some of you might be excited about that possibility, right? Well, let's get started with our first question. Question number one, how do I know God's will for my life? This is a big one. And honestly, I'd say this is uh, the single most familiar struggle to Christians. That is, if you are at all remotely interested in pleasing the Lord. How can I know personally what it is that God wants for me, wants me to do, uh, who he wants me to be with? How can I know the will of God? It's a great question and one that we all need to understand how to answer personally. And just so you know, the aim of answering this question is to equip each of us to be able to confidently say, I, I believe that I'm making the right decision. I believe that I am walking in the will of God, that I've chosen the way that he has for me. The question, as I spoke to earlier, it presupposes that we would like to know what it is that God wants from us, what his purposes and plans are. And again, we should ask ourselves, do we want to know? Because if you don't, there's a problem. We do well again to examine ourselves and ask, do I really want to live to be in the middle of God's will for my life or not? 
And frankly, if there's an area in your life where you're fighting against God's revealed will, you know what God's word says, but you're doing something else, I hate to make it awkward, but let me ask, uh, answer that prior question for you. It, it's no. You do not want God's best and his will for your life if you are presently living contrary to his clearly revealed will. The answer is no for you. If we're honest, most of us were content to have things our way underneath a thin veneer of religion. Basically, we'll do whatever we want or, or at least a fair amount of it and then do some things that are religious so that we feel a little bit better about ourselves um, and maybe so others will cut us some slack. At the end of the day, the Bible calls that walking in the flesh. And scripture's clear that those who live in that way are going to reap corruption. The book of Galatians tells us that way. Sin is pleasurable for a season, but then comes the harvest. We're talking about that in our study in 1 Samuel. We've had, we've had a, a two-week break, but we're going to come back to the balance and look at 2 Samuel chapter 12 next week. David enjoyed his sin, but the bill is coming due. It's the same in our lives. Now, the reality is that if, if we're to know God's will and are therefore prepared to do it, we need to recognize and appreciate that it, by very definition, is different than we would naturally choose or want to do. How many of you have discovered that and know that? That typically, God's will for your life is different than what you would choose for a host of reasons. The prophet Isaiah, recording the heart and mind of God for Israel, he writes, it's recorded in chapter 55, verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God does not think like you and I do. He's completely other. He's infinite, holy, all-powerful. He's all-knowing. So how do we discern and understand what it is that he wants for our lives? What his will is in, in, in the broad sense, but also in the more intimate details of our day-to-day -day living. What school should I go to? What job should I take? Should I move? Should I date that guy? Should I marry her? What should I say in this situation? Should I sell or buy? I think for the Christian, I, I think the best way to know God's will for your life is to pursue three disciplines. Not only when you need an answer, but all times. In fact, I think it works better if you're in the regular habit of practicing these disciplines as opposed to just simply coming up against a tight spot and, and needing to employ these just to sort of get over the hump. First of all, we need to pray. And I know most of us could guess that one, right? Okay, pastor, pray. And I bet I can guess the next two as well. All right, well, maybe we'll see. But honestly... I meet so many believers who either don't pray or pray very little. Because when we say pray, 
Sometimes we mean something very different than what someone else is thinking. Sure, I prayed about it. What they're talking about is I prayed on my way to the, the, my, on, on my commute. Or, or I prayed in between songs on the radio. Or, or I sent out a, a request. My friends are praying. Have you prayed? Do you spend time in prayer? Dedicated time. Methodical, disciplined communication between you and the Father. Waiting on Him. I know some of us, well, pastor, you don't know how busy my life is. And, and, you know, you get paid to pray after all. That's what we just, you know, honored you for a few minutes ago, right? You do the praying. I'll do the living and the hard stuff. I know some would say that. You know, I, I, I already get up really early or I'm up late at night. I was thinking the other day, my wife told me a story one time of Jonathan Wesley's wife. I've forgotten her first name now. I, 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 Cynthia? Susanna. Johanna Wesley, that's what we'll call her. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know what her name is. But anyway, in talking about this very thing, it was recorded of her, and they had a whole gaggle of kids, like I think more than eight or ten. The kids would know that mom was praying when she would take the apron and just pull it up over her head because there was so much chaos in the house with all these children. But when she did that, they knew to be quiet because she was praying and she was seeking God. And some of us, we need to figure out a way to establish that, that prayer closet time, that, that war room, to borrow from the movie, where we're seeking the Lord, where we're pushing other things out. It may require sacrifice. Pastor, and I get up early, or I go to bed late, or whatever. Well, get up earlier. I have three kids. <laughs> My wife works, has worked. She's going to school right now, which is more work than work was. We sacrifice. Are we serious about knowing the heart and mind of God or not? Praying, fasting even. Jesus speaks to this clearly, and it's recorded in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and he who knocks it will be opened. You know what's funny? Jesus, in talking about prayer and God's willingness to answer, he didn't say everyone who asks Claim it and it's done. It'll be answered. No. It's like he intentionally teased it out. Said, well, the one who asks and seeks and knocks. And, and what's written there, what Jesus was saying, it describes an increase in intensity and desperation as we move from asking to seeking to knocking. You pray until you receive an answer. Yes, no, or wait. It's usually one of those three. Jesus goes on to underscore and illustrate this truth in verse 9. Or what man is there among you who if his son asks for bread will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish will give him a serpent? Or if you then, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. God wants to answer our prayers. He wants to reveal himself. The question is, are we investing the time in waiting on him and listening? James, he addresses prayer powerfully and how God wants to meet us there and reveal himself to us in chapter 1, verse 5 of his letter. If any of you lacks wisdom, 
God, I don't know what to do about this situation. I'm really wrestling with, I'm not sure if I should. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. God will answer. He'll give wisdom, but he's looking for faith. Faith that, that presses in and is interested, not only knowing, in knowing the answer, but in knowing God. Secondly, you, you astute believers out there and churchgoers would guess the second one is read. That's kind of a no-brainer too, isn't it? But, but I would say that again, for far too many in the church, Bible reading is absent. The verse of the day, a brief devotional, someone else's seeking of God that's been regurgitated for you, it's better than nothing, but it's no substitute for truly sitting quietly before God and reading the Bible with a heart to hear and understand what it is that God would say to you personally. Frankly, it's why when I study and prepare to teach on Sunday morning, I typically do not listen to other pastors teach the passage that, that I'm bringing. I don't do that because I don't want to simply reiterate, regurgitate what they studied and came up with. Typically what I do is I go through the passage, I outline it, I, I pray and I ask God to show me and I bring up references and things and then I go to commentaries. And occasionally if I'm really struggling, I'll go and I'll listen to a pastor uh, teach on it and honestly, this is going to sound silly to you, but I, I pick somebody who's just boring and disciplined in going through the word because again, I'm not looking to try to be somebody else. I just want to bring the word as, as God has equipped and gifted me um, a word, as Richard prayed earlier, frankly, that's for our church body. What it is that God wants to say to the church at Lake Forest, at CCFR. The same principle applies to us personally. And I'm not being negative about helps or additional resources. All I'm saying is there's something very unique and powerful about opening the book and reading a verse at a time, a chapter at a time, and letting God by his spirit speak to our hearts. Lord, what is it that you would say to me today? Psalm 119, verse 105, the psalmist writes, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. How do I know God's will? How do I know what it is that I'm supposed to do? God's already explicitly said that this is a map. It's a light. It will show you not three years down the road, not a mile up the lane, one step at a time, like a lamp. God keeps us in that place of dependency, so we, frankly, we don't get ourselves into too much trouble. We have to keep depending on him. Pray, read the word. Thirdly, we need to ask. And what I mean by that is we need to ask others. Get advice and counsel. Again, 
Richard and Gary, they represent the whole of however many it is, six or seven of us, that, that represent the, the elders, the board of this church. You, you should be and you would be scared if I was the only one making decisions, all right? There's wisdom, as we'll read in a moment, in a multitude of counselors, and we need that in our own lives. Godly advice from men and women who are walking with Christ, who are in love with him, who are seeking him and exercising the disciplines that we've been talking about. Not just people who act like they have all the answers, but who humbly seek and live for him. In Proverbs, we read 24 verse 6, for by wise counsel you will wage your own war. And in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. When I come up against a difficult decision, I typically talk to at least two people. Three. I've got one right now. And I've spoken to my wife and two other men who love the Lord. What do you think I should do? I'm waiting for a response from one of them. We have to be careful about rushing into decisions. And once again, I'm not talking about shopping counsel. I'm not talking about asking until we hear what we want to hear. Because some of us, were afraid to do this because we don't want to be told we should do something that we shouldn't or don't want to do or that we shouldn't do something that we want to do. I'm not sure if I said that right, but I think you understand me. Man, if I go and ask that person, they're going to tell me not to do it, and I really want to. See, this is the problem we talked about earlier. What's God's will for my life? Let's just cut to the chase. You really don't want God's will. You want to do what you want to do and feel good about it. God wants to grow us past that. Where we recognize, no, his way is best. It may cost me something. There may be some pain involved. It's, it's going to require some dying to the flesh. But ultimately, it's the best path and place of blessing. Got to be careful of that. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Paul warns us, test all things, hold fast what is good. Not a lot of times, but sometimes I've gone to others for advice. Godly, godly people listened and went, hmm, nope. <laughs> you, you love the Lord. I, I trust that. But you're giving me your opinion. And it doesn't match what I know God's doing, what I've already received confirmation for in his word, in my own heart, and from other people. Occasionally, that'll happen. Now, if that happens all the time, if you're like, oh, I just don't ask people anymore because the Lord's already shown me and I know what to do. Okay, well, you need to back up the truck. There's a problem with that. Read, pray, and ask. Now, our second question this morning Why does CCFR not pray the Lord's Prayer during service? And that might seem like a weird transition, like, how do I know God's will for my life? And now, why do we not say our Father who art in heaven? What in the world? Well, we are talking about understanding God's will for our lives. And frankly, we should be curious about God's will for the church. Why do we do things the way that we do? Well, if you grew up in a different denomination, maybe a high church, experience or an orthodox congregation, you might be accustomed to that, or it may just seem like it's the churchy thing to do, 
Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. There you go. If, If it makes you feel better, I do have it memorized. So why don't we here at CCFR recite it together during service? Well, the funny thing is this question was asked, and then we started singing Matt Marr's song, Father, Let Your Will Be Done. So in one sense, we do recite it and sing it. It's one of my favorite songs. I love it. But in answering this question, though, it's helpful to read in context from the Gospels when Jesus gave us this example prayer. What what spurred the giving of the Lord's Prayer? And what Jesus had to say in that moment, Luke 11, 1. Now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. As John also taught his disciples. The disciples were not asking for a prayer, but rather how to pray. Teach us how to pray. Matthew then gives us a little more details as to Jesus' response prior to giving the model or the, the, uh, the Lord's prayer. It's found in Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the street, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Repeating the same prayer over and over and over again. Therefore, do not be like them, for your father knows the things that you have need of before you ask him. The religious seem to uh, be prone to this error of trying to impress God with big words and lengthy dramatic prayers. Jesus is saying, don't do that. Now, repeating or reciting the Lord's Prayer does not have to be vain, all right? Not saying categorically that there's anything wrong with it. But it's ironic that just before Jesus gave the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, which if we're direct, most of us would agree has been reduced by many to vain repetition, he warned against that very thing. Right before he gives the Lord's Prayer, he said, hey, by the way, when you pray, don't don't succumb to vain repetition. That's not what prayer is about. It's like he's saying, guys, prayer, it's not some magic formula. And and what I'm giving you is a model, one way in which you might pray. Here are the basics that you should look to cover as you pray. Try to hit each of these points. And you know what? Honestly, this is how I use it in my own personal life. I did yesterday and I did this morning as a structure for my own prayer in my reading of the word when I got up this morning. Our Father who art in heaven, and then I spend some time on that. God, you are awesome, powerful, mighty, and great. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. God, that your will and your way would be done in my life. God, would you have your way with me? And on and on through the prayer. It's a beautiful structure for prayer. It's an outline Leads us from worship and adoration of the Father to a surrendering to his will. To asking for needs to be met. Give us this day our daily bread. Into forgiveness and then protection from the enemy. 
ending remembering God's power and greatness for yours is the power and, and, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's perfect. And a healthy prayer life should include all of that. The question is, though, are we instructed in the Bible to recite this prayer when we gather as believers? Well, we're actually given very little instruction in the Bible as to how church should go. That is, how our times of worship should be conducted. The basics are there. What forms our liturgy, uh, what we do when we come together, it's found in the New Testament. And we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And then we move to verse 46. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And in Luke chapter 2, we find teaching of the Bible, which is reiterated throughout the New Testament. Prayer, which is emphasized, of course, throughout the whole of the Bible. Shared meals and communion given us by Jesus and the apostles as well. Regular gatherings and worship modeled again by Christ and the early church. First established on the first day of the week, Sunday, in the book of Acts and also mentioned in 1 Corinthians. To this we would add baptism, which of course Jesus modeled and the apostles taught, which we'll talk about in a moment as well as evangelism. The Lord was adding daily to the church those who were being saved. The church, obviously, is to be about sharing the gospel with the lost. So the bottom line is, why don't we recite the Lord's Prayer? Or for that matter, why do we keep things relatively simple? In theological terms, what we do, this is called low church, all right? Some of you, you know, you look around the warehouse and you got that right, yeah. It's what we do. Um, for my part, it's because that's what the Bible gives us, a simple outline. And our faith tradition, Calvary Chapel, the family of churches that we belong to, follows that, that model. Now, is there a problem, again, with reciting it? No. Again, for many of us, it's a helpful reminder. It's meant to be a guide in our prayer life. And we do actually sing it some Sundays. Now, lastly, as I alluded to a moment ago, we're going to address baptism in the context of knowing God's will, whether or not this is necessary. So our third question this morning, if a new believer in Christ refuses water baptism, how does that affect their salvation? It's a bit of a combination of knowing God's will and why we do what we do at church. So first of all, why do we baptize a person when they begin following Christ? For the answer, we go to the Bible. When Jesus commissioned the 12, they were instructed to, Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. You could say that making disciples or followers of Jesus begins after faith, faith, of course, with baptism. We see this throughout the book of Acts. 
Someone is born again, and then they're baptized, usually right away. Baptism at first appears in Scripture in the ministry of John the Baptist, but his was a baptism of repentance. It symbolized a new beginning and turning from sins, but under the law. This baptism, it was a precursor to the baptism in the church. Jesus was baptized by John. We read about it in Matthew's gospel, chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to, excuse me, John, yes, tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? But Jesus answered him and said, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. It was for Jesus part of fulfilling on our behalf the righteous requirements of the law, the old covenant. And it was an example for our baptism. So, Baptism is not something that we've simply concocted on our own. In fact, it's one of the few rites or sacraments, religious acts that the Bible gives us, along with communion and some of the offices of, of leadership and functioning of and within the church. Some denominations, they've added others, but the key is what does the Bible actually teach? New Testament Christianity, honestly, it's a lot simpler than the organized church has made it over the centuries. So is baptism required for salvation? Must we be baptized in order to be saved? Does not being baptized jeopardize a new believer's salvation? I mean, we are, after all, commanded to be baptized following confession of faith. And yet, the whole of the New Testament is clear that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. There's no work, not even baptism, that we add to our salvation. We can only receive it as a gift following repentance and faith in Christ's work on the cross. In Romans, we read chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Nothing here about baptism as it relates to the security and finality of our redemption. So the question that arises is, if baptism is not required for salvation, why are we instructed to do it to begin with? Because someone who has not been baptized or feels they don't need to be baptized might grab hold of this and say, well, I don't need to be baptized then. The issue of baptism really has nothing to do with impacting our salvation. It's a response, an evidence of what's happened in our lives. I like to think of it as the first fruit of obedience in the life of the believer, someone who's repented of their sin. 
received forgiveness, has been born again, and is now following Jesus. Because of necessity, what it means to follow Jesus is to stop going in the direction we were going in and turn and follow him. So there's got to be evidence of change in our lives, right? Baptism, it's a public declaration of all that God's done in your life. It's a physical picture, an illustration for the world to see. So what are we to do with a new believer? Or for that matter, we could ask any believer who's never been or who refuses to be baptized. And this, I think, produces another question. Why not? Why would you not be baptized after turning from your sin, after being born again? I can think of a few reasons. First of all, lack of opportunity. No water. That, that is a problem, right? If you're in an arid region, that actually in church history is what gave rise originally to sprinkling rather than full immersion baptisms. It was because of a lack of water. Fear, afraid of what others may think, say, or do. Weak commitment. Maybe this person, they fall somewhere in the spectrum of Jesus' parable of the sower and the seeds. Their commitment, it's shallow or temporary which begs the question as to whether or not they've been regenerated to begin with. Ignorance. There could be someone who just didn't know they needed to be baptized. I would add to this, maybe they believe that because they were baptized as an infant, they don't need to be baptized as an adult. Well, I hope what we've already reviewed helps us recognize that baptism is clearly something that is, it is a response of a heart and a life that has the maturity and the capacity to understand what they're doing, and an, an infant can't. I was baptized as an infant. My parents thought that was the right thing to do. That baptism spiritually did not mean anything for me, and it doesn't for any child who's baptized. Baptism is something that follows confession of faith. Baptism is, is a choice that we make, a choice to obey Christ. It could also just be disobedience. Delaying what we know to be the right thing to do. So to the one who's begun a new life in Christ, but refuses baptism, there's a problem with obedience and maybe faith. It doesn't bode well for that man or woman because, frankly, baptism is only the first in a lifelong journey of learning to walk in obedience to God's revealed will. Learning to walk in the light of God's word, to walk in the spirit, to follow Jesus. Now, I've met some people that made sure they were baptized and then did nothing afterwards. It was just a religious expression. It wasn't really the answer of, of, of their heart to want to follow Jesus. But I think when we have surrendered to Christ, it should be the beginning of a life of obedience. In John 14, verse 15, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's not something that affects our salvation, but it is one of the many things that we do in obedience to Christ because of our love for him. Now, much of what we've spoken to this morning, it comes down to an issue of the heart and the will. 
Will we, will I bend to God's way? Will, will that individual, will the church bend to God's way? Will the new believer? Or do we insist on being in charge? Will we exercise the discipline of prayer, of seeking God's will and way in his words? Will I obey? Or have I determined to do it my way? Knowing what God wants, his will, it's generally straightforward. There are complexities out there, for sure. But if our desire is to please him, he'll guide us and work it out. The real issue and problem is our rebellion and pride. Have we surrendered? Do we want his way? I'll close with this story as Pastor Frankie and the worship team come on back up to give us a final song to close with. A a story that was shared by pastor and author Bruce Larson. He writes, for many years I worked in New York City and counseled at my office any number of people who were wrestling with this yes or no decision. People trying to understand what, what God's will was in a given situation. Often I would suggest they walk with me from my office downtown to the RCA building on Fifth Avenue. The entrance to that building is a gigantic statue of Atlas, a beautifully proportioned man who, with all his muscles straining, is holding the world upon his shoulders. There he is, the most powerfully built man in the world, and he can barely stand up under the burden. Now that's one way to live. Larson writes, he goes on, I would point out to my companion, trying to carry the world on your shoulders, but now come with me across the street, and on the other side of Fifth Avenue is St. Patrick's Cathedral, and there behind the high altar is a, a little shrine of the boy Jesus, perhaps eight or nine years old, and with no effort, he's holding the world in one hand. My point was illustrated graphically. We have a choice. We can carry the world on our shoulders, or we can say, I give up, Lord. Here's my life. I give you my world, the whole world. Accepting and obeying God's will, it's a lot like that. It requires that we surrender. Stop trying to carry everything ourselves. And simply trust Him and obey. And for those that are resisting some area in your life, you're resisting God's will. You know what it is that you're supposed to do and you've been fighting against him. When you do finally surrender, you'll find power and encouragement to trust God and walk in his grace and his power. Accepting and obeying God's will is best for us. It's a lot like author Bruce Larson described. Giving your world to Jesus, letting him carry it and and no longer trying to carry it yourself. But it requires surrender. Simple trust and obedience. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to do that this morning, God, to to trust you with the things we don't understand. God, 
to purpose, Lord, to exercise the disciplines and the means that you've given us to understand your heart and mind. Lord, to surrender and say yes to you, God, to prefer your word over our will. God, help us to bring our questions, our struggles, our sin and our rebellion to lay it down at your feet. Lord, where before we've said no, God, may we say yes. Father, where we've covered our disobedience with religion, may we allow the light of your spirit and your word to expose that, that we might repent. God, that you would forgive us and that we would walk in the lamplight of your word. Help us to do that now, Father, as we surrender to you in this final song of worship. In Jesus' name.